Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, January 18th, 2023, and today we're going to be taking a look at some of the questions we've been hearing from international educators over the past seven days. Uh, before we get into those three questions, I want to give a special shout out to those watching live on one of our SMIE Consulting social channels, Facebook, Insta Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube. Grateful that you're here live for the conversation today. Uh, for those that are not and watching are watching on repeats, either on uh, of those platforms or by downloading our podcast, subscribing to the SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup uh, on your favorite podcast provider. We're grateful that you're here for the journey. And as we do each week, we take the stories and the themes that we cover here in our questions from our SMIE Consulting e-newsletter. Uh, that comes out Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and I'm dropping the links to uh, the uh, website where you can subscribe for smieconsulting.org slash subscribe. I'll also be putting the email version of the newsletter, uh, the most recent edition of the newsletter in the chat, as well as the LinkedIn version. And between the email version and the LinkedIn version, uh, we are closing in rapidly on a thousand subscribers uh, for the SMIE Consulting E-News. All, all the SMIE news fit to share. So we take those news stories that we come out on Monday morning, you get those direct in your inbox free of charge, and then we develop some themes around some of the common articles that we see popping up. Uh, and each week on Wednesdays, we go into questions surrounding those, some of those common articles and go a little bit deeper and talk about how they might impact what we do in international education, how that might affect our strategy, might put an idea in our heads about a new market we need to look at or a new strategy we need to, uh, to engage in as part of our recruitment efforts. So that's why we're here, and we'll get straight into our first question of the day, which is one that's been getting a lot of eyeballs over the last few weeks in higher education in society in general. And that is, how will chat GPT affect international education? Now, for those not familiar, chat GPT is a new uh, AI product. And I'm going to be dropping in a, uh, three links to stories, one of, one of which uh, that we'll start with from the pie uh, has uh, kind of an international ed perspective. There's also been a, uh, several articles in uh, in higher ed journals and uh, business journals about the impact uh, ChatGPT might have on the education system uh, from both uh, the academic side in the classroom, what that's going to mean at, uh, in, in higher education circles, uh, what can ChatGPT actually do, and how, do we, how can uh, teachers identify what's coming from an AI source like a ChatGPT versus uh, a student's actual authentic work. Uh, and also an article from Jim Jump. Uh, he's a, a, a legendary uh, admissions uh, commentator in the United States, uh, and he's also got some uh, very specific uh, qu uh, concerns or potential uh, discussion points related to ChatGPT and the college essay. Uh, that we, and we could also extend that to statement of purposes for, uh, for graduate department programs. So all of these are ones that you want to pay attention to uh, as we go through the discussion here. Uh, but one thing, I, I just, just for talking points, uh, I'm thinking, okay, ChatGPT, we're going to be talking about how this will affect international ed education. Uh, we can talk about uh, if you require, like Jim Jump uses his example in his Inside Higher Ed piece about uh, 
a college essay, if you give um, have a, a, a the common app prompts, for, for example, if you put those out there and then ask ChatGPT to generate that an, uh, an essay that contains certain things, you give them topics that you want to have covered, what will that generate? Uh, and will, would uh, an admissions officer be able to distinguish a chat GPT generated essay versus one that's actually from from uh, from the student themselves. So this is something that we're, we're going to be dealing with in higher education. Uh, but before I get uh, get into it, I did, did want to share a story uh, in terms of what chat GPT chat GPT suggested as talking points for today's session as an example of what it can do. And we'll, ch we'll see, we'll get some feedback from the audience to see what you think about uh, how how legitimate it is. I haven't looked at those talking points yet, so I'm going to get through my piece on uh, what I would talk about uh, related to international education first. But when you look at, I'll share a story uh, I learned from, um, happens to be from a, a prominent Catholic high school in St. Louis County. Uh, there was uh, a cheating scandal uh, last, uh, last semester in the late part of the fall where an English uh, teacher had uh, issued an assignment for essays uh, to uh, the class, and the cl uh, those came in, uh, then uh, grades were given, and then there was a tip-off that, uh, don't know who it was from, but a tip-off to the teacher and then to the administration that uh, students had used, an unnamed number of students uh, had used uh, an AI source uh, tool to create their answers for their essays, to, or to create their, create their essays. And that's one of the beautiful things about, well, if you consider it beautiful, one of the intriguing things about what ChatGPT can do, if you wanted to write an essay, if you wanted to give talking points, if you wanted to give a summary of a certain topic, it would be able to do that very easily based on the available sources of information on the web anywhere in the world. And they can do it very rapidly. And I will share share the results of my experiment here uh, to talk about uh, the impact of ChatGPT on on international ed in just a minute. But going back to this high school story, uh, the students that were were um, this is a, this is a prominent high school where uh, the tuition amounts each year are well into the twenty thousands, if not higher, uh, per year for high school. Uh, that those students there was about forty percent of the class. Uh, the, the, were determined to have used this AI service to create their essays that they turned in, and those percentage of the of the class that turned them in using this service uh, were were obviously uh, failed that 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 essay or that assignment, and then the school had indicated they were going to be putting uh, a mark on their permanent transcripts that would then go to colleges when they apply in the next year or two, and to noting that they had used. Uh, uh, they have cheated, found to have cheated, documented that they had used a, an AI, uh, AI uh, generator to create their essays that they turned in. And the, the thought was that this is just the beginning. The, but the, what had happened was the school, when they found out that this, this particular service had been used, they um, employed some AI scanning uh, counter counter uh, counter tool to uh, to the Chat GPT to find out if what were the markers of uh, of uh, where the, where the essays that they submitted how did they find out they were fraudulent they used uh, another tool to find out w whether that information could have been uh, generated uh, 
by uh, an AI generator. So interestingly, uh, <laughs> my prediction is that school is going to see huge um, uh, in, uh, increase in, in, in scholarships uh, to, to the institution for financial aid. That's it's the high school, remember, private, private Catholic high school. Huge uh, increases in scholarships from f uh, f the families of these students that have uh, cheated uh, and gotten their way on, and gotten their grades adjusted, uh, and gotten these failing marks and now are getting, uh, will have something permanent on their record. So it's going to be interesting to see if the, how, how that plays out and how other universities, other high schools, uh, utilize anti-AI tools to try and find out uh, whether, uh, and maybe may, many, like many of us do, uh, professors have their, their ways of finding out if, if, article, if essays that are submitted or, or papers that are submitted have been plagiarized or are plagiarizing someone else. Uh, that's, uh, that, that kind of tool is going to apply to, uh, to essays and, and papers, I would think, from here on out. Uh, the smart institutions will certainly find, the, find those tools to counter uh, what ChatGPT can do. Now, uh, the question is, are, is everything that ChatGPT produces evil? Uh, clearly not. It's an AI. It's AI. It's not, it, not self-aware yet, I don't think. Uh, but what's, um, let, we'll, we'll go to my experiment uh, where I asked, write some talking points about the impact of ChatGPT on international education. And largely, these tools are positive. Uh, these recommendations, there were seven that came up through uh, the when I inputted that question or that task to ChatGPT. Uh, first up, ChatGPT can help improve language learning by providing an interactive and personalized experience for students. So there's that potential there. So let's focus on some more of the positives. It can also assist with cultural understanding by providing information and insights about different countries and cultures. Awesome. Uh, can apply for study abroad as well as the newly arriving international students. ChatGPT can be integrated into virtual classrooms, allowing for more efficient and effective communication between teachers and students in international education settings. Good point. And it can also be used as a tool for online tutoring and language practice, helping students to improve their language skill. That certainly makes sense. Uh, it can be uh, uh, the ability of ChatGPT to understand and respond to natural language input makes it an ideal tool for helping non-native speakers navigate complex academic content in a foreign language. So potential uh, benefits for your newly arrived international students whose English proficiency scores might be good, but might, they might need a little extra help in terms of understanding the content in the classroom. So that's, that's, a, that's a, a very valuable tool. And finally, ChatGPT can help to bridge the digital divide and provide access to education to students in remote or underprivileged areas. So all fantastically laudable goals of talking points about how ChatGPT can potentially impact international education positively. So I'm going to keep this because this is uh, something that I, I, I think will be, uh, will be something I'm, I'm certainly going to refer back to. Uh, I'll be sharing some of this uh, probably in an upcoming post, uh, just uh, just to share what the, that uh, that that experiment uh, produced. But certainly, there's a lot in here uh, about ChatGPT from these three articles. And if you haven't already, you can create a free account on ChatGPT to be able to utilize uh, the what the. Uh, what the service can do, can do for you uh, might help you in, in, in some of these areas that uh, you're seeing uh, in this uh, recommendation list there, talking points uh, of the 
uh, of the impact of ChatGPT on international education. So I didn't, the question, talking points weren't written to be negative. So if I put something in there, how will ChatGPT hurt international education or international student recruitment? So I could do with something like that. So you can modify this as you wish. But this is really something that I think um, it's, there's potential, I think the positives can outweigh the negatives if it's used correctly and used as a force for good. But uh, for, uh, for institutions that uh, need to protect themselves to make sure their the grades they uh, are providing are what they, the students deserve, then certainly there's going to be some need for some due diligence and uh, uh, equipping yourself and your institution with tools to counter some of the potential negative impacts of a chat GPT on what, uh, what you what you're hope to achieve in your institution. So that's a good first question, great start. But let's move on to our second one of the day, and that is, what is an international student parent strategy? Now, my goodness, this uh, for many of my friends in the, in the business who are in one-person operations or very small offices that don't have bandwidth, this is a dream. To have um, a, a strategy to attract uh, and influence the parents of the students that you're recruiting. Uh, is something we all wish we could probably do in an ideal world, and it probably comes down to bandwidth uh, in your office, staff time, uh, potential funding that you need to to make to do certain things related to the, to make this a, a truly effective tool. But uh, let's let's chat for a little bit about what this looks like. Uh, so, so two good friends of mine uh, that I've worked with in the past. Uh, uh, one with Education USA and one in the consulting world, uh, have uh, recently done an article for the NAFSA International Educator magazine uh, that's just come out, dropping the link to that in the chat. So if you aren't a NAFSA subscriber, unfortunately, you won't be able to see that article beyond the headline and the intro paragraph. But uh, what I found uh, when it comes to parent strategies, it's, it's probably the part of the international student recruitment process that everybody wishes they could have well-developed, but it's the part that probably gets the least attention paid to it because it is a next level of, uh, of work uh, in terms of building a potentially a calm flow for, the, for those parents. How do you get their information uh, as part of the process? And for the most part, when we talk parent strategies, we're talking about undergraduate recruitment uh, of international students. But the article itself is by Jackie Castine and of uh, Jackfruit Marketing and Marigold Holmes, uh, who had been at, until recently at Oregon State for a number of years. Uh, and a good friend used to work with her in Education USA. Uh, Jackie, I've worked with her on a couple different consulting projects over the years, some years ago, but uh, certainly she is uh, a frequent conference speaker, uh, well-educated on international ed issues, and uh, has uh, she and Marigold have uh, put together a really fantastic article here uh, that I, uh, I, I think can serve as a real template for, for those that are trying to develop uh, an international parent strategy uh, for, for their for their uh, undergraduate admissions uh, recruitment efforts. Now, some of the highlight, highlighted parts here um, that Jackie and Marigold take a look at uh, is that first it's going to the root of why that particular student is looking abroad. Uh, not just necessarily only at the United States, could be looking at many countries as part of their overall uh, uh, options that they're considering. So depending on what those families' drivers are, uh, it could be quality. It could be uh, 
price. It could be location. It could be a variety of other factors that parents and the students are considering. And they may come at it at, from very different starting points in terms of what the main motivators are. Students might be looking for where they might have some friends from their high school or their, or their neighborhood that are uh, going to university if they're going abroad. Uh, that it's... Um, uh, what, that it's it's the reason for going abroad. Maybe the un, the options at home aren't the best, or access is limited uh, to uh, to students who aren't at the top of the top of the academic food chain. So and those are the uh, those are the drivers uh, of what uh, that institutions need to have a look at when they are thinking about uh, what kind of content do parents want to see. And knowing that it's not going to be universally the same wherever you go, but knowing that every parent, if they had an option, would probably want to see a scholarship of some sort for their son or daughter. Some out of absolute necessity that there's no way they can afford an undergraduate education in the United States without some financial help. Or to others that might only want that because it's uh, going to be a feather in their cap when they're on the cocktail party circuit with their friends and friends and uh, colleagues from work. So there are a lot of different motivations out there, but uh, you can you can boil them down to a few key ones. Uh, financial is going to be one, depending on the individual family circumstances, what level of importance that'll take. Uh, it can be quality and rankings; those tend to rise above from, particularly from parents that might not have any other ideas on how they can assess universities in the United States because there are so many and there is no official ranking in the United States of U.S. institutions. So we have to be cognizant that that those rankings that are out there are what is the only thing and that they have to go on if they don't know any better uh, or have had experiences in the United States themselves. So that's all part of the process is identifying those individual family motivations. Uh, and that's uh, what are those what are some of those drivers and that uh, uh, Jackie and, and Marigold uh, identify decision making drivers here as the big whys for going abroad. Uh, after those big wives, the mobility drivers, they, they talk about the decision-making drivers. So what's first making look abroad, and then, then what are the uh, individual decisions coming down to? Is it going to be academic quality? Uh, is it going to be value of investment and career outcomes? And you got, good, goodness knows those have been rising up the ranks in, in priority uh, ROI type of questions. Uh, is it the student support that, that their son or daughter is going to have when they're overseas uh, in, a, in a foreign country, uh, having their prime formative years of their education uh, finally as they grow into an adulthood? into adulthood, uh, what, that, what that looks like, making sure they have the right support, making sure their son or daughter is safe, um, that accessibility and cost of health care, pandemic protocols, all of these other things, environmental safety, crime, weather safety, as we've talked about on this channel before, what safety means to those parents, uh, the location of the campus uh, and the, the experience in that city, in that state, in that uh, in the country. They want to want to know all the various factors that might impact uh, their son or daughter when they're studying abroad. And the likelihood of admissions, uh, and that, whether you like it or not, that has a factor uh, on where, if they just will decide to apply. Are they going to play it safe and just apply to the ones that uh, they think they have a chance of getting into? Are they only going to apply to the name schools, whatever it might be that they've heard of? So these, these are all the decision-making drivers that they've identified. So do you, will, do you have talking points in your marketing materials uh, that you might have for students that you can adapt 
for a parent audience. Uh, so certainly uh, useful discussions there. And then next step is really having uh, understanding how the that decision process is facilitated. Uh, and as the article points out quite clearly, students are, are often considering options in two, three, sometimes six different countries uh, as to where they might study. So it's, it's never, it's no longer just a, at home or abroad. It's at home or it's not at home, but maybe five or six countries overseas that might be an option for students. And as their parents try and understand the incredible complexities from one country to the next and uh, answer all those kind of driver questions. So it's really, uh, really looking at, uh, for example, the, the article highlights, if you're looking at like two countries in Europe, Netherlands and Ireland, uh, Ireland, uh, you would want to, if you're an institution in Ireland competing with a student who's applying to, the, to Dutch universities as well, who have recently been told, as we've talked about in weeks past, and in the newsletter talked about that last week, that uh, there are university, uh, the universities in, in, in the Netherlands are being told, don't recruit more international students. We don't have housing for them. Uh, so if you're an Irish school that does have adequate housing for, for international students, that's what you want to be focusing on if you know that that's going to be a, a, a a quantitative, uh, qualitative difference and a quantitative difference for students that might be applying to you who might also be applying to a country where housing issues are really a, a major concern right now. So uh, that's an example of uh, understanding that decision process, what goes into it. And in the end, uh, it's to our benefits as institutions when we're recruiting students that we should be leveraging, as the article, make, uh, last closing section of it, uh, focuses on leveraging the power of parents as, as influencers. Uh, influencers is a word we talk about in, 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 in recruitment oftentimes as who are the influencers, social media influencers that we need to be working with to help us recruit students. Sometimes it's your current students if, they're, if they've got a big social media following. Other times it's uh, p people who are uh, alumni of your institution that you want to work with to help promote your school to, uh, uh, to students. But the, the parents, as in the end, the primary influencers, because they're the ones going to be paying the bills, most likely, that these are the relationships you as an institution, when you have an op opportunity to, to work with them directly and have chats for, for incoming students, parents, on what your options are for on-campus arrival. If you have a separate parent orientation for those, uh, those that have large enough numbers where you might have uh, a large enough or a cohort of parents that will be accompanying your undergraduate internationals when they come for, for orientation. Do you have something separate for them? Because uh, that, that's always making them feel uh, more in, a part of the process and more engaged and valued. And those institutions that do that best are the ones that can tick all these boxes in terms of uh, having content for them, direct communications with them, having events for them, uh, all the way through the recruitment cycle, even into the time that they're enrolled. Obviously, when they get on campus and uh, the reality and having a session during uh, during a separate parent orientation on FERPA and what that means and what they can and can't get about their sons and daughters, that would be a fantastic prep, prep session. They won't like it, but that's one a session they need to hear about uh, in terms of what those restrictions are. So when you can address those questions uh, and concerns that they have, uh, then you're doing, uh, doing yourself and your institution uh, a world of good. Now, uh, that's, a, that's a great uh, segue for our last question of the week, 
which is uh, why is everybody talking about housing these days? Uh, and this is uh, the article is is, a, is fairly innocuous, but it's from uh, from Canada, from Ontario, uh, Ontario, Canada, out of the Pie News. Uh, that in Canada now there is um, the Higher Education Quality Council of Ontario. It's a provincial agency. Has said that international students are facing challenges finding affordable housing, maintaining their mental health, and understanding Canadian academic culture. So they've identified that as an urgent need for colleges and governments. This is the report uh, findings that uh, there's an urgent need for colleges and governments in Canada, provincial governments, to take responsibility for improving international student well-being. So that takes a lot of uh, shapes and forms, but my focus here is on, is on housing. Now, housing has become a critical issue in the last two years. The pandemic really highlighted a lot of these issues, not just in Canada. Uh, certainly, it's, it's happened in the UK. It's happened in the Netherlands, as we've just talked about with the last section or the last topic on parents. And we've talked about it, what's happening in Australia, uh, we, where you have uh, the province of Western Australia, the state, uh, yeah, state of Western Australia, is now paying citizens of Western Australia to house international students because simply they have a huge shortage. And with the rushes coming back in after the pandemic, particularly from India, they need these new students coming in need housing. And uh, it's uh, most of the campuses are it's limited uh, to what what might be available on campus. Most people are looking for housing in the neighborhoods around uh, the campuses. So uh, in Western Australia, they're paying people to, to house international students. In Ontario, uh, they've identified housing as a key issue. Cape Breton University is turning away students because they they just have they don't have the the, the capacity to house them anymore. Um, I know on my campus, uh, University of Nevada. Las Vegas. We're transitioning back from a pandemic-style uh, situation when we reopened in the fall of 20. Uh, we had a limited number of uh, students who were on campus and then into 21. Uh, but the, we, we had gone from doubles in our housing to all singles. Uh, but we didn't convert them all back in time for fall of 22. So that led to, we had a little bit of a shock, not a huge one, but we, it's, a, it's a sign of things to come if we, as we continue to grow at UNLV with the more, more uh, international students we have coming, we didn't have uh, adequate housing for those all of the new international students as they arrived. And a lot of it's down to our communication in terms of making sure we're, uh, we're doing a better job of informing incoming students of what their options are early enough and with enough regularity of, of emphasizing the importance of, of housing uh, before they arrive, getting that sorted before they arrive so that they can move right in, ideally. Uh, and making sure those communication lines are open and that that's communicated effectively. So there's a lot of internal things we're, we're dealing with because we know we're going to grow. We're in growth mode. We know we're going to have uh, considerably more international students this fall than we did last fall. Um, so housing will become a, 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 a critical issue for us if we grow our international population too fast. So there's a lot of uh, levers that need to be moved and uh, campuses do not turn on a dime when it comes to buying properties and renovating properties. These, these need to be planned out over time. Uh, so what are, what are short-term fixes? Uh, what are other options for housing that we can maybe look at working with other private providers? Uh, so housing is going to be a critical issue for us uh, at our campus, and there are numbers of other college campuses that are, are dealing with these, uh, these 
pressures in terms of housing. Uh, for example, uh, in the UK, there they were, and in Scotland in particular, students were being told this past fall, "Don't come if you don't already have a place." That's basically what the Dutch are saying. If you don't have a place, you're not coming. Uh, even if you wanted to, we're not going to let you come uh, because there's we simply don't have adequate housing. And that's something that you think about it more and more when what Ontario has said that it's it's a responsibility of the universities and the local governments to work together to try and find solutions for these housing challenges. So that's it's a much broader broader uh, broader uh, picture than just international student recruitment getting them in the door you need to be looking holistically about the experience that those students are having uh, if those if there are a critical mass of students that come to your campus who didn't get housing who didn't know about it didn't uh, or realize that they were too late that there weren't any options available for them what happens when those students come have a horrible first few weeks and then go home and tell their friends it's not going to end well for you so when you're, if you're not addressing these housing issues in terms of your planning and the scope of what you're trying to do for your institution, if those aren't being ac accounted for in some way, shape, or form, then there's potential negative blowback that can come and really ha um, make your day uh, really a poor one in the end uh, when, that, when, that, when those students come back and, and say, hey, this isn't, this isn't the place for me, I gotta go. Uh, a lot of it comes down to communication. A lot of it comes down to not only with communication with students, but longer-term planning and communication with campus constituents that are integral, in, integrally involved in this process in terms of making the information available about what those options are. And if they're not on campus, what are the other options? And I know there are some campuses, ours included, that can't recommend individual landlords uh, be out that are outside of our university sphere. Uh, what do you do? How do you make those options available? Or how can we find those local landlords that we can maybe, though we can't officially vet them, and and uh, you can you can maybe gather a rating scale that us students can uh, can develop for that that live in these other apartments uh, and other housing options because that's something that you need something uh, to uh, provide a complete picture for students before they arrive about where they're going to live because that's that's bedrock to their comfort level their adaptation ability to your campus is how well they get settled in housing. Uh, and then those around them and every, everything else that goes into that mix. So that's what we have for you today on uh, some of these important topics that we've discussed and how, how interconnected they all can be. Uh, so we look forward to chatting with you again in the, in the next week or so. Uh, we look forward to bringing some more content to you on, uh, on these important international ed topics. So until next time, have a wonderful day. Cheers.